Son of God, Messiah, dying for our sins. And whenever we believe that and we obey that, then His death gives us life. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning into the 80th episode of Working with the Word. Today, we look to do some interpretation and application work in John 19, continuing the scene of Jesus' trial with Pilate and leading to his crucifixion, death, and burial by the chapter's conclusion. It's a heartbreaking section to see what the Lord went through, even knowing what's going to come. But these are important topics for our faith, to see Jesus laying down his life and submitting himself to his Father's will so that we can find reconciliation with God through his sacrifice. As always, we encourage you to do some brief observation on your own by either rereading the chapter to yourself, or you can listen to me read it in episode 78 from the 7 minute, 7 second mark to around the 12 minute and 34 second mark. Okay, so as we get into chapter 19, we're breaking this chapter into four sections. Jesus is tried, part two, in verses 1 through 16. Verses 17 through 27, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is dead by verses 18 through 37. And then finally, Jesus is buried in verses 38 through the end of the chapter. So Jesus' trial, this is part two of that, going back to the beginning of the chapter. Kind of a bad chapter division between chapters 18 and 19. This is all one trial with Pilate. So just want to really quickly recap part one of the trial in chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. So we saw there that the Jews want Pilate to execute Jesus. That's what they're bringing to him for basically just to stamp his approval on their desire to crucify him. But Pilate can't figure out what Jesus has done wrong. He's, he's saying he's innocent. He asks Jesus these famous questions. Are you the king of the Jews? He later asks him, what is truth? And at the end of the chapter, Jews ask for Barabbas's release Instead of Jesus, they'd much rather have a convicted criminal on the loose than releasing Jesus. And so that kind of leads into chapter 19, where we see the trial just continuing the same themes. Pilate and the Jews go back and forth, debating until finally Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. Now, we're calling these the trials of Jesus or the trial of Pilate, but really it's kind of a funny way to think of it because this is so unfair. Like, can you really call this a trial? Look at how unjust this whole scenario is. In the first part of chapter 19, it says that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Flogging, what the Romans would do is they would, you know, tie little bits of bone and metal and stone into, into a whip and basically use that as their flogging instrument. It was a merciless, cruel way of punishing someone In verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, clothed him in a purple robe, and they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. They're doing all this to an innocent man. And my impression is that Pilate is allowing that because in verse 4, he then brings Jesus outside so that the Jews can see him so that maybe they'll have some pity on him. Maybe, Maybe they'll say, okay, this is enough. Pilate can let him go. They can have pity on him, but no, in verse 6, the chief priests and the temple servants, when they saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify him. 
they want Jesus dead. They're not content with just seeing Jesus bloodied and bruised and still breathing. They want him completely dead. But at the same time, they provide no real evidence that Jesus is guilty and actually deserving of death. Pilate is still unconvinced of Jesus' guilt. And interestingly, we get a window into Pilate's own thoughts as, as, we, as we unfold this trial here. In verse 7, the Jews reply to Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. Now that really catches our attention because up to this point, we only know what Pilate is thinking based upon what he says. But here, we get a window into his own fear. He is conflicted. He is indecisive. Um, He's kind of torn between, well, what am I going to do with Jesus? Three times, Pilate says, Jesus is innocent. I find no reason to charge him with guilt. I find no reason to crucify him. But when he hears that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, it says that he's more afraid than ever. And it really makes me wonder, like, what about that is so fearful for Pilate? I wonder if he, is he starting to take Jesus more seriously at this point? Does he have some religious beliefs himself? At the very least, it seems to me that he knows he's dealing with an unusual case here. Like, he has never had a case come before him that looks like this. Everybody Mm -hmm. that has come before him probably hasn't claimed to be the Son of God in the same way that Jesus did, and, and hasn't done actual miracles like Jesus did. And Jesus doesn't look like a criminal like Barabbas does. He doesn't talk like a criminal. He doesn't dress like a criminal. He doesn't, his demeanor is not arrogant and defiant like a criminal would be. He doesn't deny the charges that he is the king of the Jews, although he qualifies that in chapter 18, right? It's not a worldly kingdom. And, you know, Jesus has followers, but they've scattered. They're, They're not raising up a revolution or trying to overthrow Pilate right now. There's no need to send troops to put down this revolution. So there's something different about Jesus, and Pilate recognizes that and causes him to be afraid. I just find that really fascinating that it says that he was more afraid than ever. And so he goes back in and asks Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't give him an answer. I wonder if another piece of this puzzle is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, we read that the night before, Pilate's wife had had a dream about Jesus. And so she sends, in the middle of this trial, she sends word to him and says, don't have anything to do with that righteous man because last night I suffered terribly because of him in a dream. And so maybe that's just another you know, piece of this. There's something different about Jesus that he's afraid of. Mm-hmm. However, regardless of him being afraid of, you know, as the son of God, there's one thing that he's more afraid of, and that's this, the final charge that the Jews lay at Pilate's feet in verse 12. They say, anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. If you let him go, then you're not a friend of Caesar's. And again, that's really ultimately the final straw that breaks the camel's back, or the final thing that makes Pilate bend to their will. In verse 15, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Hmm. Then he handed him over to be crucified. So he's even more afraid of losing his job or losing his head, really, because you know if, if he lets this revolutionary go, then it's going to go back to the the one that he has to answer to yeah. that he has let this man go and and ultimately 
he, he just makes a really selfish political move. He knows this guy is innocent. He knows Jesus is innocent. He has admitted that himself. But he sentences this innocent man to death and crucifixion worst of all yeah. just to save his own skin. And so you see Pilate really wrestling with, do I trust what Jesus is saying? Do I let him go? Do I stand firm? What do I do? But at the end of the day, he just bends to, to their will. There's one more thing that, that stands out in these first 16 verses. When in verse 10, Pilate said to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you would have no authority over me if it hadn't been given you from above. It's one of those statements that Jesus makes. You have to wonder, what exactly does he mean by that? And what he goes on to say about, this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And I don't really know that I understand all of what he's saying there. But it really does call to mind this question, who's really on trial here? Is it, is it Jesus or is it Pilate? Because Jesus is the one that is composed. He knows who he is. He is decisive. He's calm. He's collected. Pilate's the one who is really wrestling right here. It's yeah. not Jesus. And Jesus points out here that Pilate ultimately answers to God. There's a quotation by Meryl Tenney in his book on John, The Gospel of Belief. And he says, this was a trial of Pilate before Christ instead of Christ before Pilate. Hmm. And that really puts it in a different perspective. Obviously, Jesus is still on trial here, right? Yeah. You know, his, his fate is, is in question. But this really shows us that Pilate's the one who's got to make a decision. And I guess in a way, we have to make a decision too. What are we going to do with Jesus? So that's, that's a lot lot to see in, in the first 16 verses there, but it's just a really interesting section. We see Pilate kind of conflict and wrestling with what to do with him. But like you mentioned, ultimately giving into what the Jews want and sending Jesus to his crucifixion. So Jesus is crucified in these next 11 verses. They take Jesus away. This is Jesus has been moving around from whether it be the Jewish council to the governor to Pilate to, you know, some of these other different places we read about in the Synoptic Gospels as well. They move him to outside the city where they're actually going to crucify the criminals. Kind of common, it seems, with how the Jews would deal with any type of execution. We have examples in the Old Testament of things like in Leviticus 24. There's a case of some blasphemy. You know, Leviticus is a lot of law, but you have a couple of those stories about how when people mm -hmm. break God's law, God takes that seriously. And so in Leviticus 24, they take that guy outside of the camp and they're going to stone that guy. Or there's an example of Sabbath breaking in Numbers chapter 15. Similarly, they take them outside of the camp. Within all of this, there's the scene of Jesus carrying his cross and going along the way. There's some fulfilled scripture that's brought up among all of this. They take Jesus to the place where he's going to be crucified, Golgotha. Uh, Pilate makes this sign that would have been kind of standard practice. Any criminal mm -hmm. that's going to be executed would have charges as brought against them made public. So I guess on the other two crosses, on the other side of Jesus, you would have thief. Maybe it had what they stole or other things are part of their crime. But for Jesus, Pilate kind of similar to what Caiaphas does, unknowingly speaking truth or making this great proclamation, Pilate makes this plaque or puts this charge up in all the really known languages of the world at the time. It's in Aramaic and Latin and Greek, where people can see Jesus is being punished for being Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it's somewhat ironic in the fact that, like we've mentioned, Jesus 
really is king of the Jews. He really does have a kingdom. Now, granted, it's not that the Jews want him to be their king. They're very clear about that, even in the way that John records this. Always kind of made me chuckle a little bit in verse 21 when the chief priests say, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said that I am the king of the Jews. Kind of just, he claims to be, but he's not actually. But Pilate responding with what I've written, I've written. And again, that really being a true statement that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's not going to do the things maybe the Jews were expecting their king to do, as in overthrowing Rome, just as maybe why Pilate is confused that, you know, Jesus seems very innocent here. But we see Jesus is on the cross. We see the charges brought against him. We see, just as we do in some of the other gospel accounts, this fulfillment of some uh, statements that are made in the Old Testament in Psalm 22, particularly verse 18, when the soldiers are crucifying Jesus, they took his clothes and divided into parts and took them, um, but they took his his tunic and they cast lots for that, all that being quotation from there. Other parts of Psalm 22, verse 15 through verse 18 there that are kind of really brought out there, the nailing of the hands and the feet. When we get this small section of Jesus' crucifixion and just in these, again, 8 to 11 verses here, there's maybe some detail that's not listed in other places about you know getting some help along the way. Isn't that Simon, Cyrene, ends mm-hmm. up helping out with carrying the cross, yeah. they pull him from the crowd. There's really no mention of him being nailed in, but we'd understand from crucifixion that's how that works. There's no mention of the thief on the cross or things like that. You do have, though, this scene with Jesus with his mother. He's showing great respect for his mother as well as great respect for the disciple he loved, as is talked about here, as he looks down at his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. And not speaking about himself on the cross, but speaking about this guy is now going to be taking care of you. And then speaking to mm-hmm. the disciple he loved, presumably John, based on some things that we come to understand about that phrase and where we've seen that at other places in the gospel too, that that's going to be him taking care of Jesus's mother now. But those details that we don't have recorded, whether it be the nailing of his hands and feet, it getting dark, all of that kind of stuff, there are some things that are in John that I think we need to make sure we call back and remember in this moment as Jesus is lifted up onto the cross, whether we see that specific language or not, as he's being crucified In John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, who we'll actually come back to before the end of this chapter in this conversation today, all the way back in John chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and tells him, just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him would find eternal life. Picking a little bit of that there from the end of verse 14 into 15, um, don't have the whole quotation in front of me, but Jesus is being lifted up. You know, back in that moment when there was that great plague that was going through because of the serpents, people would have to look at the serpent that's been lifted up and put their faith yeah. in that. Jesus is making a statement to himself now that I'm being lifted up, that Jesus mm-hmm. is now being put up, and that he, as the Son of Man, is where people need to be putting their faith. Those seeds have been planted all the way back in the beginning of John's gospel. And as John, as we, I think, talked about very early on in this study, John's really bad about hiding the end of the story. I think it's like chapter <laughs> two, he talked about the fact that there's a resurrection and like how right. the disciples come to understand that he later. He gave it away. He gave it away. <laughs> but we're seeing all that coming to in fruition now, some of the how those things are bridging together from John 3 to this moment in John 19 when Jesus is crucified. And crucifixion is not just a, you know, you're going to be in time out for 
15 minutes or you're going to serve, you know, you're one week in jail and then you're done. I mean, there's a very clear purpose and direction that the mm-hmm. Romans want to take with crucifixion. Sometimes it could take a while. Sometimes it could be fairly quick. But ultimately, we're moving from Jesus being crucified to seeing Jesus's death brought out in this chapter. Yeah, every time I read any of the Gospels' accounts of the crucifixion, it always strikes me just how simply they record the facts. I mean, they don't dress it up. They don't, like, they don't emphasize how terrible it was. Everybody understood how terrible it was, but they're not even making any comments about, like, the the awfulness of it. They're just recording the facts. And they don't even explain, like, the significance of Jesus' death. That comes later on in some of the gospel or some of the letters, like Paul's letters. The book of Hebrews talks about that as well. But there's no explanation of okay, this is this is the the reason it's happening. Uh, but John, I think, really kind of connects those dots in other places in his in his gospel, like you, you pointed out, going back to chapter three. And so when Jesus actually dies, um, he there's a couple of things that John points out that are also significant. First of all, in verse thirty. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, we'll talk about that in a second, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. His last words, it is finished. And that raises the question, well, what is he talking about there? What exactly is finished? Well, going back to what you were saying with John chapter 3, this is the moment when he's lifted up for everyone to look at. That's what he was coming to do. In chapter 10 and verse 18, I think we've referenced this multiple times lately talking about Jesus as the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. It's not taken from him, but he voluntarily lays it down. Uh, That's what he's doing right here. He's finishing that work of giving his life for his sheep. And and then there's there's a couple more times when John mentions that what happens fulfills uh, Scripture. In verse 28 and 29, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And John says that that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And there's nothing surprising about a crucified man being thirsty. <laughs> I mean, that that's, would be natural. Yeah. Um, just in the same way when we saw in Psalm 22 that Jesus's garments would be cast lots for, divided up, that, that would be normal practice for the soldiers. That would kind of their, what, what they could take as, as the spoil for their job. So there's nothing surprising about that. But John says that little detail fulfills God's plan. Psalm 69 verses 20 and 21 is one of those places where could possibly be uh, referenced here. There's a picture there of a, a man that is suffering intensely and people are just rubbing salt into his wounds, essentially. That's the idea of giving him gall and vinegar to drink, is you're giving a thirsty man something that's not going to quench his thirst at all. And so they're just making him suffer even more. That's the picture that's fulfilled in Jesus. And then John spends even more time talking about the piercing of Jesus's side and the fact that Jesus's bones weren't broken. John makes a big deal about that, how it fulfilled the scripture in verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says, they will look at the one whom they pierced. And one of those goes back, goes back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, where the Passover lamb None of his bones would be broken. And John has made a point to emphasize and mention the Passover multiple times leading up to this. It's not a coincidence that Jesus died at around the same time as the Passover was observed. Mm-hmm. The Passover lamb was killed. Jesus died around the same time. It's not a coincidence. It's showing us the significance of that. 
And then in verse 37, this other scripture that talks about him being pierced, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, essentially says that people will mourn as for an only son for piercing God with their sin. That's a very short summary of what that passage is about. That screams Jesus. That's pointing forward to to Jesus. And so John really highlights those times when what happens to Jesus, what he does on the cross, fulfills God's plan. All of that really kind of helps us understand what's going to come ahead with the resurrection. Why did they pierce his side? Well, they wanted to make sure he was really dead. (laughs) So when the resurrection happens, there's no way that this could be just a resuscitation. He just passed out or something. No, he's actually dead. They, they pierced his, his body and he bled. And so there's no way that he is just not really dead here. And so there's a lot going on at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And there's a lot going on at the burial of Jesus too, at this last section here, picking up verse 38. Right. When we get here in verse 38, we have kind of introduction of a new character we haven't seen before in John of Joseph of Arimathea who we're told is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, you know, keeps that to himself, it seems, throughout this time of being a disciple of Jesus, and goes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. At this point, at Jesus' death, coming boldly to Pilate. Now, I don't know if he waited till the rest of the Jewish crowd was gone. Nicodemus is brought up here as well. Mm-hmm. And we're familiar with Nicodemus, kind of his interesting journey through John, of kind of coming in Jesus at night himself. And mm-hmm. that even being brought up here in verse 39, we saw, Emerson, you have to remind me because you remember better than I do. Chapter 7, chapter 5. Yeah, I think it's chapter 7. When we see Nicodemus again and kind of um, still not like fully standing up for Jesus, but willing to stand kind of against what the Pharisees are trying to accuse Jesus of and being kind of like, you know, are you sure that we need to be going this way or doing this with him? But there is still that thought, it seems, of there's fear of the Jews. You know, when I say he's come boldly before Pilate to get Jesus' body to give him a proper burial, it seems like it's still kind of weighing in people's minds. I mean, probably not looking to associate yourself with a, a supposed criminal who just died for charges. This is going to play a big part of their faith post-resurrection for sure. But we see them come, we see them choose this new tomb to give Jesus this proper burial. There's no possibility with this tomb that there's going to be some other person who comes out instead of Jesus. I think most mm-hmm. or all of the Gospels, or at least here in John, is brought about the fact that there is no body that had yet been placed in this tomb in verse 41. So it wasn't like, you know what, it was actually Rick who rose from the dead <laughs> and came out instead. It wasn't Jesus. No, there's only Jesus in here. Yeah. It is somewhat funny reading the end of the chapter they place Jesus there because it's the day of preparation. You're getting close to Sabbath day. You're not going to be allowed to do any work. And also just kind of it's close by. Wherever Jesus is crucified, we got to get this process started and we'll finish it up later. Which picks up at the beginning of chapter 20 when the women come to do some things that maybe weren't able to be done when he was first buried. Yeah. The fact that we want to stop here and highlight Jesus' burial is, again, the fact that it plays a big part into the fact that he actually rises from the dead, too. He didn't just stay on the cross, and like we said, pass out, and then come to a little bit later from the cross. Or he wasn't taken from the cross to an examination room or to a doctor's office or an ER to get worked on. He went through the whole process of Jesus is dying, so let's put him in a place where we put dead people. And also a very important connection just thinking about 
again, how it's not really brought out in the Gospels, but in other places, like in the writings of Paul, think of Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2, even 1 Corinthians 15, things that are kind of core parts of the Gospel or core parts of kind of how we connect or identify with Jesus as Christians through our death and burial and resurrection, as talked about with baptism as well. Mm-hmm. But I think really importantly, like you've mentioned, like we see here at the end of this chapter, the, the big thrust of this is Jesus has finished his father's will, finished his, his father's plan for him, at least pre-resurrection. And Jesus is dead. Uh, and they've at least started that burial process We'll come back for that later, and we know where his body is. There's no questions of any of those things as we read John. And we're given all of this detail, like you've talked about, of his side getting pierced. John using that moment to say in verse 35, I saw the blood and the water come out of him. Other places in John we're going to highlight, or maybe you notice as we've read this section already in our reading episode a couple of episodes ago, where John mentions, I testify about this to be true probably also saying that other people who could would have still been alive in John's day could have testified as well. Jesus has died. There's going to be come to need to believe in that for the life that comes after all of that, essentially. I'm trying to not give up the so what, and Emerson may have to do some <laughs> editing here because he's about to come into that, and I'm realizing I did jump the gun a little bit. So Emerson, wrap up the big so what of this chapter and why Jesus's crucifixion, death, and burial is so important. I don't think you stepped on it too much, but you know, it's interesting. Verse 35, he who saw this has testified so that you may believe his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. As far as I can tell, John is the only one that is, is spoken of even, even witnessing the crucifixion. Like there, there could have been other disciples there. You know, Peter was in the in the courtyard, I guess, of the high priest whenever Jesus was on trial. So it's possible that Peter, you know, followed John to the actual hillside. Um, but we don't read of any of the other disciples there. And that's not to say that, you know, the other gospel accounts don't record what's true or anything. But John makes a point to emphasize, hey, I was there. I saw this. And I can testify that. And he says he's testifying so that we may believe. And that, of course, connects to John's purpose in writing this whole gospel, right? Chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John doesn't just want us to say, yeah, Jesus died and he was buried, like like it just happened, just believing it was a historical event. That's important, but just believing that it happened doesn't really do you any good. We have to trust in the meaning of that and the significance of it as Jesus, as God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Messiah, dying for our sins. And whenever we believe that and we obey that, then his death gives us life. And I think that John is writing this so we can have not just confidence that it happened, but so that we can come to understand and appreciate what God did for us so that we can join with him in death, burial, and resurrection through our own response to the gospel. So our challenge this week a little bit of a different challenge uh, at the end of this podcast. Just it's going to look like there's a lot of extra time. We promise that's not accidental dead space. At the conclusion of today's episode, we're going to be playing Acapeldridge's recording of "O Sacred Head," and that's a hymn that maybe some of us are familiar with. That's in some of our hymnals, or maybe we just know that song. Uh, we suggest following along and listening to the words, or even singing along. 
and really looking to consider the meaning and the message of that hymn as it relates to the scene of Christ's crucifixion and death. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Join us next time where we will talk about the resurrection in John chapter 20. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Bro.